United, thanks for joining us. Very exciting week of movie goodness. I'm Jamie. I'm here with Dean. And Jamie will be along shortly. What have you seen? Oh, well, you know the big thing is going to be about Wonder Woman, but I guess we have to wait for Jerry for that because I didn't get to see it. A friend of mine that I've done for, you know, I went to NYU with and very knowledgeable about film. I've known him for years. Went to it, and he delivered me this review, and I'm going to read it to you. It's not very long. He said, hey, not that you're likely to get sucked in, but definitely avoid Wonder Woman. Took the girls to the Starlight uh, drive-in, and everyone agreed it was a joyless slog. Forced, dull script, way too much stiff Greek gods type type setup stuff. Remember how in Man of Steel you're like, what's it, like 40 minutes in already and we're still on fucking Krypton? Uh, Chris Pine, whom I like, is ridiculously contemporary for World War One. Danny Houston is nobody's idea of a charismatic villain. David Thewlis's hissing doesn't help much after enduring his Fargo character. The period detail is all CG, airbrushed nothingness that made me long for the transporting world world building of the three three boobs. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Oh, oh but a recall. Uh, uh, oh, this this is something else. Uh, uh, the humor doesn't work. Uh, everything is uh, everything in it is gray and muted and sleepy as fuck. <laughs> at least we enjoyed mocking it at the starlight, but we still left early and all agreed. It's become way more fun going to the drive-in than being at the drive-in. How many compa- how it got so many comparisons to the original Superman, I haven't one fucking clue. More like Superman Returns. Uh, Gal Gadot was fine. She just didn't have much to work w- with. Uh, not sure that any proven star power could have made it more compelling. My best uh, impression of her is from the Fallon, her Fallon, Jimmy Fallon interview. She was very charming and and had a fun personality. At least they gave a break to a cool gal. So that was his review, and that convinced me not to go. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, Richard Donner's Superman that takes a long time until he becomes Superman as well. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess uh, it does. Uh. I mean, you know, when he arrives on 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 Earth, though he's he's super. I mean, he lifts the he's a super baby, so it's pretty clear he's he's you know super. Yeah, but, <laughs> he but pretty I, early. I, I, I I don't remember the exact running time of the thing, but it feels like it takes like forty minutes. It does. He starts on his planet. Really... He comes home. He's a kid. Glenn Ford is his father. They're chasing the train. The Father dies. He goes to the ice city, and then he finally becomes. I mean, it takes a long it, setup. It take. It is a little bit of a long setup before we see him in the suit. If that's what you're saying, yes. Yeah. We take. It takes a little while. The, the suit but, is everything. The suit is everything. Yeah. I don't know if you in know fact, about these movies. No, no, no. In fact, me and my friend Brian here used to call – I came up with the term suit movies. We came up with the term suit movies. What does that mean, suit movie? It means that without the suit, there is no movie. Right? It's, so it's that's, funny. That's that, kind of uh, what all on, – on the, on the set of Batman, on the set of Batman, a story I love, like Nicholson and Michael Keaton were sitting side by side on the set, like in a trailer or something. And they were both fully kind of made up, 
and they turned to one another. And Dickelson was like, "Well, looks like we just got to work the suit." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, really everything about our current movie culture, uh, you know, at least the blockbusters, uh, is all about suits. It's really if you, if there is no suit, there is no movie. I mean, Iron Man, you know, uh, even Star Wars. I want to see a nudist. What about a nudist superhero? That's what we need. Jerry, who would you cast as the first nudist superhero? Ron Jeremy. (laughs) I mean, is there anyone more equipped, I mean, for the job? I mean, he should be in the live, uh, the live, um, Live action adaptation of Captain Underpants. Well, we have had that movie. That movie's already come and gone. I mean, Orgasmo. I mean, we've already had that movie. I mean, but he had a suit. He still had a suit. Yeah, well, you know, that, that's debatable. I mean, if we're going on your thing of the Jack Nicholson, Michael Keaton definition of a suit, I would say I'm not sure the Orgasmo suit really counts. I don't know. I mean, it's now. Now you got to remember, it's also been a good 17 years since I've seen that movie, and I do own that probably on DVD. Uh, but I mean, but you're a you fan know, of the new movie, right? You're you you like uh, Wonder Woman. Wonder oh, Woman, I think correct? Wonder Woman is probably the pinnacle of these movies. I think we can only go downhill now. I well, really I mean, do think downhill. it was so smart to make it a period. I we think already it know what downhill feels like. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, we I mean, what is your problem? I mean, this film, this film works because it takes place in the past. I mean, it works because they made it a period piece. They made it like the first Captain America mixed with, you know, a tinge of Thor and um, Superman. So they made it a period piece, which I think was one of the smartest things you could do. Um, I think it's, I think it works well. I, I don't, you know, I don't think I, I. You know, I'm not gonna lie to you. I think Justice League looks like a steaming pile of crap, but um, I think Wonder Woman is going to be the bright spot of these films um, for mm. DC at least. I really do. Um, I have no problem with this film. I, I think it's it comes. It couldn't come at a better time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It could not come at a better and, time. And look, I, don't, I mean, this 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 is this is a major motion picture, uh, helmed by a female director, which might have been their smartest creative decision yeah. mm-hmm. uh, to, to have, to have uh, a movie about, you know, in some respects, female empowerment come from that actual gender. Um, and she's a, she's a very good director. Uh, and it's a hundred million dollar plus grocer this weekend, which is, which is uh, no matter what you think of the movie. I mean, that's a plus, I think just in general. It's, it is historical in, in a way. Uh, it is. Uh, I, I think the great the great question to ask about this is the film is great and all that. Why is this the Why is this the second feature film from P- Patty Jenkins? I think is the more is the bigger question here. Well, I, I am curious uh, to know what she's been doing like since she no, did she's Monster. been doing TV. She's, she's been, been doing, doing a lot of TV. But even if you look at that resume on IMDb. You know, we're only talking about a couple of episodes of a couple of different shows. Why is this woman who made such a breakout movie, um, uh-huh. why is this the second movie? I think that's the question to ask. Now, I, I do think this, though, from here on out, Patty Jenkins should direct all these movies because if they're as, as emotionally charged as this, we're, look, we have a great run. Um, so we're basically saying that Wonder Woman 2 will be good and everything else will suck, I mean, is, what, is the impression I'm under. 
Uh, all right, maybe Aquaman because it's directed by James Wan. But as my friend at work said, well, we asked, well, what's Aquaman's special power? He can talk to fish. I'm like, okay. I mean, so we have a movie about the Gordon's fishermen, essentially. I mean, <laughs> you know I'm what? Sorry. Dude, I, when 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 Entourage, remember when Entourage did that whole subplot with James Cameron directing Aquaman and that I whole thing? I wish that was a reality and, at this point. <laughs> You know, I looked at it, I thought, oh, God, they'll never make a movie out of Aquaman. That's just so damn silly. Uh, <laughs> boy, was I wrong. Well, uh, they're going to make a movie out of every one of them. I mean, Plastic Man is totally on the <laughs> on the, yeah, on the board. You know, they're well, going to do that. You know, let's, you know, there is an interesting story that's happened a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, we have we, we, we have a lot of interesting comic book films and we have a lot of bad comic book films. But one of the more interesting comic book films, um, the second one didn't do as well as they would have liked, and that's Hellboy. So they decided after many years of, you know, oh we'll let Del Toro finish his story. Well they're not. They're gonna get Neil Marshall, who's a very good director, and they're gonna make it a very hard R reboot with um the guy from uh, Stranger Things who's gonna play Hellboy. Not that I have a problem with this, um, you know. I I don't care who. You, I mean, I think Hellboy has run its course. Personally, I like it, but the the, the movie going audience that's there for that um, has you know packed up their bags. Um, if yeah. if you understand what I'm saying, I mean, you know, the, some of these things are not going to do well. Um, you can't go and decide to take everything out of the um, bottom drawer of the closet and decide to make it into a movie. It doesn't work like that. They did this with Ghost Rider twice, um, and I'm still trying to figure out the logic to that. Um, you know, it's, you know, this is the problem with Hollywood, and this goes back for decades. They, they, something works, and they, they just run it into the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It just doesn't, it, remember, we were having this, you know, you could have the same conversation it's always been like in 19, yeah. yeah, no, 1989, there was a, you know, ever oh my God, there's Batman. There's the they're gonna make a Fantastic Four, Punisher that became straight to video. One of them didn't even come to even come straight to video. So we've had this conversation. It gets tired. Oh, we're making. You know, it it burns itself out. And then a couple of years later, yeah, I mean, there's there, there, there have been tre- there have been trends throughout cinema, at least in my lifetime. Uh, I mean, yeah. it, it's more pertinent. It's more prominent. Well, maybe not, but. It feels like it's been more prominent since we've come of age, where it's all genres that they do that with. Though uh, they yeah. they they did it with they did it with the musical. Once there was a hit, they decided, oh, we got to mount all these musicals. Who cares if they're any good? Let's do burlesque, <laughs> and they managed right. yeah, to successfully I mean, kill, kill the musical yeah. again. They they did it. If you remember, like. And there are specific parts of some subgenres that they tried to do to death, like when Seven hit it so big. And you have oh, one God. movie Serial after another movie. that yeah. copy that, yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah they just, try to copy the photography and everything about it. Yeah, I mean, and I mean to be fair, you know, Seven really kind of comes from from uh, you know, Silence of the Lambs. You know, I mean, it's really Silence of the Lambs that really started the serial killer. A couple thing. weeks after Seven, you have Copycat, and um, mm. yeah, but but mm-hmm. you could, and, you, yeah. could, you could tell you could tell that. Seven was the influence in yeah. these movies because they they right. Silence of the Lambs has a very different look than Seven, and yeah. a lot most of these movies didn't try to replicate that that whole look like something like Taking Lives or 
The Watcher. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, Jennifer A. I mean, Oh God! Well, Jennifer Eight, Jennifer Eight is before is long before Seven or Copycat. Jennifer Eight is right after Silence of the Lambs, and that's not that's actually that's got the great little Malkovich part in it. But um, um, you, you know, this yeah, I mean, you're right. It just everything burns itself out. It comes back. Um, yeah. Well, I wanted to mention a movie <clears throat> that I saw this weekend that I wanted to recommend to everybody, and hopefully, if this if this episode gets out soon enough, this will help it. But uh, there's a great movie out at uh, Landmark Theaters uh, this month uh, called Obit. Uh, it's also directed by a woman, Vanessa Gould. Uh, it's her debut movie. And this is a fantastic documentary about the uh, lives of the writers, uh, the obituary writers, at the New York Times, and uh, it really, um, first of all, the movie is incredibly well designed. You know how, like, sometimes you can see a documentary and the graphics overtake it, and they seem totally wrong, and, and here the graphics totally work in support of the story and the feel of the movie. Uh, uh, the the movie, uh, you know, talks about, talks about the philosophy of writing uh obituaries uh and basically basically says you know a lot of you know a lot of people think it's going to be and the movie is not depressing at all but a lot of people might think that you know writing obituaries is depressing but these writers say that no because what we're doing the death is actually a little only a little part of an obituary it's only in the first paragraph basically the rest of it is telling the story of people's lives, interesting lives that were full and and full full of achievement. And so, uh, death really doesn't enter into it. Although they do, they do say that writing obituaries does does make them think about their own mortality a bit more than than uh, you know uh, most people do. But uh, uh, the film is great. Like it it does just about everything. It, it it's like. It's like if you if you met an obituary writer, this movie answers answers the questions that you would ask that person if you were an inquisitive person. Uh, it, it even fo- it follows like to give it kind of a story through line. Uh, it follows a couple of obituaries from uh, from the moment they're mentioned because they have to go to editorial meetings to decide whether someone even deserves a, uh, an obituary in the New York Times or not. Um if there's enough, you know, material there. Um if there if there really were a mover and a shaker in the culture. Uh but it follows two people. It follows one of the people is uh is a um is a uh, producer, an ad man uh, from the '60s who created, you know, iconic commercials like for Benson and Hedges and and for Alka-Seltzer, uh, and then the other one uh, that they follow from the beginning to the end it was uh, Kennedy's um, John F. Kennedy's, um, I guess, handler that uh, encouraged him to uh, to clean up and everything for the uh, for the debate. Between with Nixon, uh, and, um, and so so it's like uh, you know, and of course that debate it was incredibly consequential. The way the way Kennedy looked versus the way Nixon looked pretty much decided the uh, uh, decided the vote. 
So uh, so they had to decide whether these people were were you know influential enough, and uh, and it follows the the writing of those obituaries and the um, uh, and and to their ultimate publication. Uh, but there's also little mini bios, little like you know they obviously asked each of the interviewees, all of which, all of whom, by the way, are incredibly intelligent, incredibly interesting. Um, they obviously ask each one of them, you know, who are some of the mem- most memorable people you did obituaries for. And there's little obits in there, uh, kind of peppered all the way through. So there's uh, all sorts of interesting stories that you learn, and it it really makes you want to like immediately after you watch the movie, go to the obituary page of the New York Times, which for me is one of the most essential uh, sections of the paper. Period. Uh, you, there's so many interesting stories to to learn about on the pages of the obituaries of the New York Times. It's great. So I'm just I'm a fan of of the obits and the times, and I'm a fan of this movie. It's really really terrific. It's one of the best movies of the year, uh, and it's playing at Landmark uh, sometimes. I think for a couple of weeks at least. So if you got a Landmark theater near you, uh, go and check it out. It's really great, and it's called Obit. Our Landmark is showing Wonder Woman. <laughs> I'm sure ours is too. I mean, if no, I go to the, yeah, I was trying to figure this out yesterday. So because we went to go see the Dimitri Martin movie Dean, right? Uh, and it was just very good, by the way. But we'll we'll get to that soon. But yeah, I think the reason that our so we have a landmark, we have there are four landmarks in the in the area, but the one near us was you know for a long time was you know exclusively like an art house one. Well, I think that era is over, and I think it's because the the um, there's a regal up the street that closed down, so mm-hmm. they're like getting Wonder Woman and Guardians of the Galaxy and um, Son of Baywatch and that sort of stuff. So they're starting to show all that, and um, I noticed that uh, the, the other land one of the landmarks area has become like basically where they'll show pat you know like second or third run you know films are not it's not even a first run theater anymore and then another one is they're just showing only big movies and um so it, it, it's kind of depressing so at least it's good that you guys got oh i don't even know if obit is still at the one downtown but um i well, do want to see I it mean, because I, I just read obituaries all the time um so i, I, I love really them i think they're great um the landmark the only landmark that's in atlanta uh right now is playing a documentary on John Coltrane called Chasing Train. They're playing mm-hmm. Obit, uh, and they're playing a, uh, a a forum film called The Happiest Day in the Life of Ollie Mackey. Uh But on the other screens, it's Pirates of the Caribbean, Alien Covenant, uh, Wonder Woman, and Guardians of the Galaxy. And this is our one of only two. I'll go to three art house cinemas in the in the uh, in the Atlanta area. Only three. Uh, there's a four there's a four screen one uh, uh, called the Terra, and there's a two screen one called the Plaza. And other than that, that's all we got. So, and of course, I'm when surprised you, go, you. I'm surprised that Atlanta doesn't have an arc light yet. Yeah, we don't have we don't have an, an Alamo. We don't have you know the closest thing we have is the Plaza, and uh, and we don't we don't have any of that stuff. So I'm surprised man, just because I, 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 I long I long to. I long to revisit the Arc Light in L.A. 
Like, I mm. think about that theater a lot. <laughs> no, no, we have an arc light here. It's the, only, it's the only theater I'll go to lately is the arc light or the landmark. I won't go. I would go to AFI more if they showed better movies, but they just, they just don't. <laughs> they I mean, what are they like, showing? I'm curious about well, that. No, they, they, I mean, well, here's the AFI. So the AFI, well, I, I used to excuse the AFI here when they opened the Silver when they moved it from the uh, the Kennedy Center to Silver, I accused them of ripping off Film Forum and the Angelica up in New York. I, I just felt they were really just stealing their program, <laughs> their programs. Um, they do have some interesting things, but it seems like it, it seemed like for a while they would they would start showing the stuff that would come to Lam- the landmark Bethesda, which is near us, in the second or third week. Oh, um, if that makes sense. So. Because I think they realized they couldn't compete with anyone. Mm. Um, they were having a lot of trouble. Now, that's not to say they get some good films. They got Snowpiercer. They got It Follows before anyone. Um, they got some of those those kind of films. Um, the Mississippi Grind they got. Where they uh-huh. Okay. So they do have, they do show some films that no one else will show. But lately, that's just been, on the, on the other, the last movie they showed that really that no one, was The Handmaid. Mm, okay. Um, and that was it. I mean, now we're just getting they're they're showing Patterson weeks or months after it's been out. I did watch Patterson last weekend, and I loved every moment of it. Isn't um, that a wonderful movie? That yeah, it's a beautiful a movie. movie. It's just that scene with the Japanese, um, the Japanese man was beautiful. Um, yeah, I, I like whole, that little scene with the little ten-year-old girl uh, that he oh, yeah. encounters, and she reads a, him a poem that she's written. All the poems, by the way, in that movie are written by, uh, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but are written by an established poet. So those aren't yeah. those aren't the work of uh, Jim Jarmusch, but uh, um, but he uses that work beautifully in it. And, uh, is, uh, is it my imagination, Dean? You, I, we, we, I think we, between the two of us, we've probably seen everything by Jim Jarmusch. Is this not the gentlest film by him? Oh, yeah, no I mean, question. I mean, easily. I mean, easily just like the most peaceful. It doesn't have any sort of agenda. It's all. It's really just a slice of life. The first time he's made a, a true slice, slice of life movie. I mean. Well, I mean, he's a pretty low-key filmmaker just in general. I mean, let's, right. let's no, be no, fair. But, uh, but uh this one, this one has a different feel to it. It might be, it might be that it's also his most accessible movie. I mean, I think it's the kind of movie that uh, I, I have, I have friends that you know, longtime friends that still uh, talk about how difficult it was for them to get through Stranger Than Paradise because they just thought it was dull, uh, and uh, they kind of feel that way about a lot of Jeremy's stuff. I but think, I think that, that if you think more than you would think that I would think of that ending of Stranger Than Paradise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 a notable movie, but this this one I just think is is just a little sweeter uh, than all those. I think uh, there's a there's a certain sense of cynicism to most of the movies that he's done, but uh, but th- this one doesn't have that, and. and uh, and to to boot, the, the sweetness is genuine. There's there's real, uh, there's there's just a real genuine sense of love mm-hmm. in the movie. That, yeah, I think uh, it's his most great. accessible since Night on Earth. I think it's his most accessible from since that one. Um, mm. I that, that was, was very accessible. 
That was not a movie I liked. But you know what I mean, though. I think it was something that the that someone who had never seen any of his movies could could get yeah. into. Yeah, I've always found that Down by Law is the one that most people love by him. Yes, that, that's that, true. That is true. You know, that's that's always mentioned as uh, as a favorite of his. But good, I'm glad you got to see it. It's, I, no, I no, encourage I, everybody I to watch it. it. Yeah. Yes. Fantastic. That's good. What have you seen, Jamie? If, if Jamie Not a hell here. of a lot. <laughs> really? <laughs> I was just letting you guys carry on. It's fine. I don't have to butt in. I got plenty more to talk about. I mean. uh, well, okay. Well, I saw uh, the only thing really that I saw uh, was this uh, PBS ran this Beatles documentary the other night. Oh. In honor of the Sgt. Pepper 50th anniversary. Uh-huh. Uh, and look, and look production-wise, it was nothing to write home about. I don't know how long ago it was produced. But it was, uh, content-wise, it was really fascinating because it was hosted by a musician. And uh, this musician went into how revolutionary uh, those tracks were. He went through the the. the the chord progression, the various instruments they used. The, I mean, he really broke it down in musical terms. And I thought it was like a, a fascinating way to study that album and celebrate its impact. Uh, and, uh, of course, along the way, you got the audio that's included in the new 50th anniversary uh, edition of it, of uh, outtakes and their conversations in the studio and that sort of thing. It, w- it was interesting. But I will tell you one thing on PBS that I'm looking massively forward to. And that's the next Ken Burns uh, documentary series on the Vietnam War. That started oh, in September. Cool. And um, they had a sneak preview of that. Here I am. I'm talking about, like, the only thing I've watched this past week is PBS. Uh, they had a sneak preview of the Vietnam War, and it's uh, scored by um, Trent Reznor. Mm. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. And then I rewatched Mystic River, and I liked it more than I remembered. Um, the only and, thing I don't uh, like, and it's funny, I I watched uh, Gone Baby Gone this week, <laughs> and uh, I was I was kind of uh, you know, which is also based on Dennis Lane. Uh, no, yeah. I know you're a huge fan of Dennis Lehane, uh, uh, Jerry. Uh, I, 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 I uh, let's not let's not read too much into that because because I read I you know that book that he that there was a Live by Night or whatever. I thought that uh, book was you know really mediocre, and the movie was even more mediocre. So I mean, yeah, let's not let's not let's not let's not throw that out out at me, okay? Please uh, don't. Well, don't. I, okay, but I like um, Mystic River though. I do like Mystic River though. I won't. I won't. I think that's a great book. I really do. Um, as a movie, don't, don't throw, as a movie, Mystic River. You know, I I I love it. Uh, except for I don't really care for Sean Penn's uh, performance. I, I find it's a little, it, it's rather over the top. Oh, really. <laughs> um, I think Kevin Bacon. It's a great movie, but I don't, I don't movie. care. I don't care for the uh, the central performance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I don't think well, it's a great movie. I think it's a good movie, but uh, I think it's a good movie. But I think that performance kind of takes it down a notch. But what mm-hmm. raises, raises it up a notch 
is the performance of, of Tim Robbins, who I think is great in it. So, and and, and you know, I I do like the I do like the uh, script and, and the adaptation and so forth. But uh, here's my question: Is Boston like between this and Gone Baby Gone, and uh, and then Spotlight? Is Boston like the uh, the uh, capital of 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 the world in, in terms of uh, child molestation? It has to be. Oh. It, I mean, that would God. that would be that would be Pol- that would be Polk County, Florida. <laughs> our, our our sheriff our sheriff is uh, on the new, the national news every month uh, with a new uh, child molester uh, roundup. Okay. Oh, okay. It, yeah. Like I'm not kidding. We, we, I'm like, what, I, I'm glad that he's doing it, but he he seeks all this nationwide attention for it, and it makes us look like which we might be the pedophile capital of the world. Okay. Um. Yeah, that's disturbing. I guess. Uh, you know, uh, I wanted to mention something that I watched yesterday. And so, well, hang on, hang on. I'm not done talking about Mystic River. Let me just say, oh, you started oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. Uh, watching it again, uh, I really, I really liked it. I, I actually, I do love Penn's performance in it, and there's. The, and the photography in it is wonderful. Like when he's when he's going down to the to the morgue to view his daughter, uh, and he's shot kind of in silhouette shadow approaching the the slab. And, and I mean, it's very great moody photography. And it's something obviously it's a moody photography that he took even further with Million Dollar Baby. And what surprised yeah. me most was I had less of a problem with the very end of Mystic River on the second viewing that I did the first time. I do have a problem with the conversation that Laura Linney has with him prior to the very ending of it, because all of a sudden we've gone from the Boston street to like some kind of Shakespeare soliloquy about how he's a king and all this. It just didn't feel germane to the, actually the movie. But in terms of him, of Kevin Bacon, like pointing and pretending like he's shooting a gun at him and, uh, that the whole ambivalent ending, I had less of a problem with it this time. I do still mm. have a problem with the Million Dollar Baby ending. Uh, oh, I love that. Kevin un- Bacon is the unsung hero of that movie. Mm. Uh, yeah. uh, unlike uh, unlike Mystic River, um, I-, I do think that the Million Dollar Baby ending is inconsistent with what those characters would do. Uh, in what way? I don't I don't understand that. I mean, are you talking about They're the fighters, very very but... end of Million Dollar Baby with him eating no, the pie? I love, the I love him. At the, I love him. I love him at the bar. At the yeah. I, I love at that the very last. Yeah. Time. Yeah. But uh, oh. I've always said this about Million Dollar Baby. I I didn't agree. I have no like thought about euthanasia in general. I, I, I'm not. It's not a political thing. I just thought they are both fighters. And she finally found someone in her life who loves her, right. uh, who is that kind of figure for her. And I did not think that either one of them would make that decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, it worked for me. I, I think I, I, it worked for me. It was. It, that's just a. But, uh, but, but maybe not. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I guess. I yeah, can I see mean, it, it worked but... for me too. 
I don't have a problem with that ending. I know a lot of people do. I mean, it was very controversial at the time, but um, I thought he, I thought his action was more. I mean, against more against her her family. Margot Martindale is so evil in that movie. Um, yeah. Well, her mean, action, his action is a, his action is a sign of love that he de- yeah, uh, I mean, he doesn't want her to suffer. Yeah, right. It's an act of love. Yeah, I, that's what I that's the way I felt felt about it, and and, uh, and it, it, on that level, it works for me. So, but I I can see what you're saying. I know that they're both both fighters, but if. I don't know if your if your whole life is one thing and you can't do that one thing anymore. Uh, um, you know, I I can I can understand wanting to wanting to check out of things. Uh, but so. her life her her life was that one thing, mostly because she had nothing else. Right. Uh, and and now she has him, and she has like a extended family of sorts in in Freeman and, you know, the other people associated with him. Hey, that's true, but let's face it, both, both Freeman and uh, Eastwood in that movie are not spring chickens and they're not going to be around forever. So, uh... They're both so. still around. <laughs> that character could have lived for another 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. You're right. So nobody watched uh, uh, House of Cards. This week? I've been, I've been, I've been watching it. I'm in seven episodes into it. I'm not binge watching it. Okay. Um, you, know, you, know, you know, it's very. Good. I'm, I'm barely, I'm barely good, one episode into it. Uh, okay. Can I, Dean, can I just say one thing though? It can't compete with what's going on in the real world. As good as it I mean, is. he's obviously trying to, right? I mean, it's, oh, God, it's obvious. No, no, he wants to so badly. Even we were watching. So I think I'll be done with it maybe next weekend. But I don't want it. I don't like. Can I be honest with you? I don't like binge watching. But um, I have watched seven, seven episodes, which is is saying something because I don't really like to do this anymore. But um, it's it's superb. I mean, let's not get. I'm not gonna let let's not beat around the bush. It's still one of the best shows there is. Um, is yeah. great well, let me just say this, and then Dean, you can you guys you guys tell me what you thought of it. But I've watched most of the first episode. I, I mean, I I got Netflix again just to watch it, and that's what I do. I get Netflix when House of Cards comes on, and then I can't cancel Netflix. <laughs> so, um, and I usually I usually use a free trial, so I don't have to pay it anymore. But but I haven't had the time to watch it. But it is amazing to me how from the, that very first episode. It it, it it has so many echoes to what's going on today, and they, sh- I mean, they wrote and shot the the series prior to all of this happening. Mm-hmm. So I mean, they yeah. they are they are prophetic. But the bad news is, like, by the time it comes out, uh, it's already been it's already happened <laughs> for real. That's true. It's true. I mean, you will see as you go deeper into the series that uh, that uh, there's a lot more. Prophecy in it than uh, than you're seeing just in that first episode. It's still good. I uh, I you know I mean of course you know Kevin Spacey and and uh, and Robin Wright are completely beyond reproach. They're the reason to tune into it. Um, uh, if I have any complaint uh, of the show, which I do find very entertaining, 
all the way through. I did binge watch it. I've watched the whole season. Um, if I have one complaint, it is that unlike some other shows with a huge amount of characters in it, like The Sopranos or Mad mm-hmm. Men or blah, blah, or whatever, uh, um, this is a show that I think is very difficult to follow without some kind of scorecard or something. You need some kind of... Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they'll be talking about somebody and planning some kind of some kind of machinations, some kind of backstabbing, and and I'm like, okay, now who are they trying to get? Who the fuck? I can't keep all this stuff together. I really can't, and I, I, I... I have to say that that must be a failing of the show because they haven't really beyond Spacey and uh uh and Wright and maybe Michael Small as the as the little toady toady dude uh chief of staff. Uh I don't think that they've been successful in um Re- really defining the supporting characters, I think, uh, or making them any many of them very memorable. Now that said, right. this this season they add uh, Campbell Scott uh, and uh, Patricia Clarkson into the mix. Yeah, yeah, right. and, and they're both excellent in it, um, and they're very memorable supporting characters. But like Nev Campbell, blah, or uh, almost every yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, she she shows up. She shows up, and you're like, okay, what are you doing, honey? And and that's it. I mean, you don't really you don't really get much from her. Um, I the show to me so far. I mean, like I said, hopefully next week or the weekend after I'll be done with this. But um, it, it's very good. But I I, I just think, wow. Um, it, it's not, and it's not the show's fault. It's just you can't compete with what's going on in the real world but, right now. Um, but. You know, but the, yeah, that's not the show's fault. So it's no, uh, no, it can't be. It can't be. They had no idea. They had as, no idea. As a series, quote unquote, uh, definitely what's going what's going on in in the real world of politics is much more interesting. So, uh, <laughs> so I mean, there there is no question about yeah, that. Yeah, that's a challenge. Let me let me that's ask a challenge. you a question and, and, about when, the real world. Though. Have you ever lived? You remember ever living in a time? Where you leave work at five o'clock, and you get home at five thirty, and there's breaking news every day. Yeah, it's, I mean, I can't however, get over that. I how, however, dude, I, I mean, seriously, uh, what irks me about the news networks is they play that breaking news thing no matter what. Like the breaking yeah. news thing used to, yeah, no, used they to do, be for breaking I mean, news. Yeah, they're, they're overdoing it. No, yeah. no, what, I agree. Jamie, I agree 100%, but it is like there are seriously, it seems to me when I leave work at 5, I get home at 5.30, there are some legitimate yeah. breaking news. I'm just like, guys, really, can we just have a day where a cat is run over by something or a dog is run over? That would make yeah. my life really feel a lot better. Um, but I, here's, my, here's my question, and I, I might have asked it of you guys before, but I definitely asked it of Tony Macklin back a couple of months ago when we did our show on political cinema. Uh, is the political satire dead? I mean, is it? How do you satirize it now? Uh, I mean, how, how does that happen? <laughs> well, maybe idiocracy, how. idiocracy might be the last word in political suicide, uh, political, uh, um, you know, spoofery. Uh, you know, uh, that's 
that's probably the the end all be all uh, uh, of of that genre. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the, you, you could only go that level of ridiculousness uh, in order to do it. So, and uh, that's kind of exhausting. I agree. <laughs> it is exhausting. I mean, idiocracy was very prophetic, not just politically, but also socially. Um, it, it really you got a handsome Mike Judge, and I, and I and I joked about this last week, but I. I think Silicon Valley is sort of the prequel to idiocracy. I mean, it's this is the stuff going on, the stuff that people, the apps and everything have just really are the gateway drugs to something much more horrible, and we're seeing that all come to fruition. Here's, have here's, really- here's another question, though. I, I mean, without trying to get too political, but I do think – Social media and all that stuff has has probably made us dumber um, and less engaged. Less engaged in the actual world, not the virtual world yes. where we can type something and feel like we're engaged, but the actual world. Um, mm. But do you think that they said the same thing? Probably, I was thinking about like the seismic shifts in culture of which social media and that whole thing is – Definitely, definitely represents that. And I was thinking, what was like one of the last things that represented that? And I was thinking maybe TV. Uh, yeah. And I bet when I bet when TV came around, a lot of people were saying similar things, like it's the death of you know, it's like it's the death of tranquilize everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, they definitely said that. I mean, obviously yeah, they I mean, said that because they they called it the vast wasteland and and. Uh, yeah, and also and also, you know, Marshall McLuhan and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, I mean, abs- absolutely they did that. But the only the diff, I mean, I don't know if there is much difference between television and and the computer now. I mean, maybe there isn't. Uh uh because because they're both equally addictive, I guess. Well, that's uh, addictive, but you've gotten it where people don't have to leave their home and they think they're engaged. And there really is no engagement. You have to really leave the home to do anything. And yep. we have made it, I mean, this is only just on, on just a lot of different social stratas. But, no, social media, I, I don't know, Clooney or someone a couple of days ago said it's the equivalent of masturbation. Um, but social media has definitely, now we have seen it after, if you want to take it, if MySpace, Starting with MySpace, I guess in 2005 or 2006, we've seen a full decade of its effect, and we've seen it now, and it's quite frightening actually, um, in, in many regards. And it's not so frightening in other regards, but in some regards it is. We have now seen the, the effect of it, and it is there is something we, if you can stand back, it's very chilling. Well, even even if chilling. you're leaving home, though, obviously, even if you're leaving home and going out, you're you still take taking that shit with you. So, <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. I mean, people are people are now. That's what's really crazy to me, because when I go out personally, and I don't go out very very much these days because I have the internet <laughs> and I can like I can watch all sorts of stuff, and I don't have a job or anything, you know. Uh, so, but. When I do go, when I do go out, I do not. Well, first of all, I don't even own a uh, a smartphone. So I mean, 
you know, it's not the fact that I don't don't take it it's, uh, out with me. It's that I don't even own one. Why? Because when I go out, I don't. I want to be. I want to see the world. You know, I don't. I don't want to be looking at this thing. Uh, I don't want to be tethered to it, and uh, and I don't care about taking pictures of everything that I see. And uh, so I just I don't want it. Don't you don't want, want to take pictures of the meal you're about to eat. <laughs> you, you know, like I I went in to go see the. Uh, you know, in December I went to go to the screening of the new Star Wars and they were asking for everybody's phone because they don't want <laughs> they don't want anybody to film it or whatever. And uh so uh and I said I don't carry a phone. <laughs> and they were like, "What?" <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, I don't carry a phone. I don't like them." Uh and yeah, I just I don't believe when I go to screenings, I I just leave them in the car whenever I go to screenings. Right, Which, right. If anyone's if anyone's used to going to a screening, then they should automatically do that anyway. But they can't get they can't get by with that journey from the theater back to their car without checking right. their phone. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Or 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 going to tweet immediately a, a sort of mini review or something. You know, it's like I, I'm, and, and I don't do Twitter either. Uh, <laughs> I've got. Uh, I uh, recently got on Twitter for the first time uh, to uh, to go after. Uh, it's like the first time in like a year or two. I have an account, but it's not very active. Uh, I, I went on there to complain to Sasha Stone about something, and uh, what a shocker! <laughs> <laughs> well, they were reporting on the uh, on the Atlanta Film Critics Society which uh, popped up last December and still doesn't have any, like if you go to the Atlanta Film Critics Society, which I should be a member of. I'm a member of the Georgia Film Critics Society, which is legitimate. It has it has its members listed on its website and all sorts of stuff. But when you go to the Atlanta Film Critics Society, there was uh, there's nothing. They don't even have their members. It's just some random guy that did. We don't even know who it is. Um, and... Uh, I was complaining that they were running, you know, that that Awards Daily was running something about the Atlanta Film Critics Society. Uh, And she was like, oh, why are you being so rude or whatever? I'm like, I'm just saying it's it's bogus. But they they went, well, the Georgia Film Critics Society had to start somewhere, didn't it? So it's just a guy starting a thing or whatever. I'm like, yeah, but it's not legit. Uh, uh, but anyway, so uh, they were they were complaining that I, one of one of the uh, awards daily people were like, you don't have much of a digital footprint on <laughs> on uh, Twitter. And I said, yeah, it's because I don't do it. I hate it. <laughs> it's a cesspool. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I, I don't. There are times when I'm in. Where I'm like inspired to possibly engage in shit that I don't agree with, like posts or what have you. And ultimately, like 98% of the time, I just think that's eh, not worth the headache. So I, I mean, yeah, I just no, pass not. it over. It's definitely not. Which I is another thing that, that it would it, it would it would be so nice if the culture could uh, 
could feel that same way. Like, ah, that's not worth it. That's, uh, it might happen. You know, you know it might happen. I mean, uh, you know, uh, for me, you know, like that's that kind of thing has has bled over into into Facebook. You know, like where. I wouldn't say 98% of the time for me, but it's definitely 80% of the time. When I feel compelled to do something, I say, blah, I don't want to get all the returns back. Well, you know, if you were predisposed to call out uh, a fucktard for what they are, you would never have time to do anything else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's, 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 I'm sorry I used that word. <laughs> well, you use it ironically, at least. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's good. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. When I say fucktard, I meant wonderful human being. So yeah, I was saying that right. <laughs> I have to tell you guys about a movie uh, uh, that I saw. Uh, I want to hear about Dean in just a minute, uh, but uh, right, yes, I, yes, sure, sure. I was I was reading some article about. Uh, Remember the Sony hacks that happened a couple of years ago, and apparently they, uh, you know, there was some uh, talk in there between the Sony head, uh, I guess Pascal or whatever, and uh, and and Tarantino, and one of the um, one of the memos or whatever, one of the emails mentioned that Tarantino was still excited to do a movie called The Dion Brothers. Uh, uh, he said, I, "I still want to do the Dion Brothers or whatever, you know." So I was like, well, the, the Vegas Dion Brothers, isn't the Vega Brothers the Vega?" No, no, no. This is completely different. So, oh wow, uh, okay. This is completely different. <laughs> so I was like, "Oh, the Dion Brothers. What is that?" And the article went on to explain that it, it maybe they were they're referring to a movie that Tarantino likes. Uh, called the Dion Brothers that came from the 70s. It was directed by Jack Starrett. And it's never been oh, released on video. And uh, 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 and it's just one of his favorite movies. And, uh, and when you finally see the movie, uh, which, again, had never been released, uh, and this article was done in 2014. Uh, uh, you know, when you see the movie, you can see the influence on Tarantino quite quite easily. So I was like, "Oh, it's, this article was done in 2014. I wonder if, I wonder if somehow, uh, this movie, The Dion Brothers, which was originally released under the title The Gravy Train, I, I'm wondering if oh, this was okay. out there. Uh, so I went to uh, YouTube to see if it was there because that's a good place to go and look for things that have never been released, and uh, and it was there. So I watched it now." This was a really, really good 70s movie. You know how sometimes you have this feeling of like, I want to watch a 70s movie that I've never seen before. <laughs> you know, that, that's <laughs> still really good. I feel like I've seen them all. Um, and uh, this uh, this has uh, Stacy Keach and uh, Frederick Forrest. Now, this was done in 1974, so this is a very early Frederick Forrest uh, oh, wow, yeah, I mean... Predates almost everything uh, that we know him from, you know, Apocalypse Now and The Rose and all that stuff. Um, but, uh, so, uh, it's got Keach and Forrest playing West Virginia brothers uh, who are not that bright, think they're a little bit brighter and a little bit tougher than they really are. 
who decide to join in uh, with a um, a armored truck heist that's being uh, that's being mounted in uh, Washington D.C. So they take a road trip to Washington D.C. and uh, throw into this uh, heist and uh, and then go on the lam and uh, basically the money gets taken from them and they have to try and get it back and and so forth. Margot Kidder is in there as the villain's uh, girlfriend. Um, Barry Primus and Richard Romanus, who you might remember from from uh, um, uh, Mean Streets, is in it, uh, and he also had a, a role uh, in uh, The Sopranos um, later, much later on. But uh, it was a really good movie, and let me just tell you this: it has the, one of the most fantastic endings I've ever seen in an action movie. Uh, it, it's like literally like a 20-minute shootout inside a building that's being demolished with a wrecking ball at night. You know, it's being – wrecking ball is just demolishing this building. So not only are the villains and the heroes, you know, uh, battling each other, they're also battling this wrecking ball that keeps coming through through the walls. (laughs) It's so great. I mean, I was like, wow, this is the greatest – one of the greatest action sequences I've ever seen. It's just so, so fantastic. I was like, so, I mean, maybe Tarantino is planning to remake the Dion Brothers. It's definitely something that would be ripe for a remake, um, especially by him. Uh, but uh, it, it's right there on uh, YouTube if you want to see it. Uh, it's called The Gravy Train, uh, and it's also known as The Dion Brothers. You can just search that, and you'll find it immediately. And uh, I, I was really, really taken with it. Is it one part? Is it one video, or is it broken into several parts? It's one, it just one? One, one full video. Uh, they apparently got it. Uh, it, it was apparently uh, recorded off of Cinemax, uh, probably in the 90s or something. Uh, wow. And... Uh, it, it, it was really, really good. I, I was, I was surprised uh, at how how good it was. Oh, and I should mention this too. Here, here's something that makes it even more interesting. The script, which is uh, attributed to some name I I can't even remember now, was actually ghostwritten under a nom de plume by none other than Terrence Malick. <laughs> wow, <laughs> is that crazy? Uh, just absolutely nuts. Uh, so, uh, and, and it's, it's, a, I mean, it's a pretty basic kind of script, uh, in some ways, but there's a lot of good character stuff in it. Uh, uh, both Keach and Forrest, uh, especially Frederick Forrest are incredibly good in it. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a very notable movie, I think. And that, uh, that, uh, that wrecking ball sequence is, uh, uh, a metaphor for what Malik would later do to his career. Uh, <laughs> uh, you could say that. <laughs> song. But okay. So, so Dean, huh, how was that? Cause th- that Dean is look- actually very good. It's, I guess it's Dimitri Martin's directorial debut. Uh-huh. I don't. I don't think he's directed anything before this. I mean, I know him from that Ang Lee movie, Taking Woodstock. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I know him from in his stand-up comedy. So he plays um, 
a cartoonist who is, along with his father, Kevin Klein, a very good performance by Kevin Klein, um, they're in the process of grieving uh, the death of um, Dimitri Martin's mother. Mm-hmm. And um, that's really what they, the movie is about, how they, the two of them d- uh, differ in how they come to terms with grief. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, a, so there's, a, there's an argument to me that, that Dimitri Martin never really comes to terms with it. He's um, escaping the issue while... The, the central focus, um, at least, is the selling of the, the, the family home um, in, New, in New York City. And um, so Kevin Klein is in the process of selling this um, to um, Mary Steenburgen, who is, I, he definitely wants to have a relationship with, but not, it doesn't, I won't say it works, it doesn't work out um, completely. But Dimitri Martin's story is, is very interesting because it takes him to the West Coast, and he stays out there for a little bit, um, pursuing um, career-oriented things, and then that falls apart, and he meets a girl, and that's a very interesting um, story. But it's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting movie about how, how people deal with grief, and there are different ways of dealing with it. But it's actually quite good. Um, very is it moving. funny? I mean, because he's, yes, he, it you is know, funny. he's a stand-up. It is, stand-up funny in so. that, it is funny in his stand-up comedy kind of way. I mean, he definitely gets he goes after everyone in this movie. Um, I, he has his way of going after a lot, and there's a lot of um. You'll recognize a lot of performances. Um, the the um, when his best friend is played by um, the guy from Veep who played um, who plays Dan Egan, um, who's now I guess on the uh, morning show or whatever. I mean, you'll recognize everybody. He gave they gave everyone a job in this movie. Okay. I mean. They gave everyone an HBO a job in this movie, essentially. Um, but well, it's, I read. It's, I, I read. I read Stephen Witte's review of it. Stephen Witte is one of my favorite film critics uh, these days. He's uh, he writes for a New Jersey paper, I think. Uh, and I've met him very briefly, uh, but uh, at the New York Film Festival. Uh, but he said uh, he said that. Um, that he felt like Dimitri Martin's uh, writing, uh, when it came to other characters besides himself, he felt like they, uh, you know, they they were all written from the same voice. You know, there's that, a, there's that, an argument to be made there. I mean, you know, that, that he didn't really differentiate between characters. You know, between his character and the other characters, they all they all well, sound like a, they're echoing each this other. This is what I've always said about screenwriting. In many ways, screenwriting is schizophrenia. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's yeah, and, it has to be, and it really is. And there's an argument to be made that he, I mean, I see. Like I said, I mean, I know him from his stand-up stuff on like Comedy Central, taking Woodstock and this, and it seems like his way of you know he's just giving his opinion on a lot of things in this movie. But there uh-huh. is this one, his voice. His voice is definitely the predominant voice. Uh huh. Um, so that, that's a, that's a very good observation on Witty's part. There, there's no doubt about that. Um, I, I agree with that. Um, I still want to see it though. I, I, no, I, it's, a good, I no like... it's a good movie. I don't mind that. I don't have a problem with that. Um, so yeah, no, you should definitely I, check it out. It's a, it's it's, a good movie. That's... And that's that's a that's a detriment that I can that I can forgive in some ways. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean it's it's it's. 
if the voice that it is written in is compelling enough, then it's fine. Uh, so, uh, you know, and I yeah. like his, his work. Uh, you know, he's in Contagion as well, uh, the Soderbergh movie. Uh, he's, right, he's, that's right. That is, yeah, he is. That's right. He's, he's, he's in a lot of smaller roles in movies. Uh, but um, yeah. although he's the lead in, in uh, uh, Taking Woodstock, right? He's, yeah, uh, that is, but, he is. He is the lead. Uh, yeah, he he's really he's really uh, good as a stand up. I find find him one of the few stand ups that I really uh, I really gravitate gravitate towards. So well, that's good. I, I want I want to see it. And plus, it's named after me, so why not? Yeah, I would think that you would have seen it already, but <laughs> it's not here yet. So oh, okay. It hasn't hasn't arrived yet. I tell you what, I really want to see that's out there is the lovers. The uh, um, yeah, I still want to see that. I definitely yeah, see I, that. I, I'm dying to see that uh, uh, with uh, Deborah Winger and Tracy Letts in the lead as as older people, you know, reengaging their romantic side. So, uh, so I want to check that out. You know, but, they premiered. I didn't realize this at the. I think it was at Tri- Tribeca. Last month they premiered this documentary on Hedy Lamar, and I only uh-huh. know I only know about it because um, there was an episode on like uh, our our public radio station. I'm listening I'm listening to and watching a lot of public <laughs> stations. Yeah, you are. NPR, N- NPR and that kind of thing. I, I I that's all I ever have in my car. So I was listening to it and they're interviewing the filmmakers behind it. And I was like, "Oh, that's great. That's uh, she's she's primed for a documentary on her life, and she's also one of those female figures that uh, I'm surprised they haven't made a movie of. Have they? No, they haven't. And they that, that's absolutely got to be coming because it really is a it really is a an interesting tale behind her her uh, her life. If in case people don't know." Uh, Hedy Lamarr, uh, who was a movie star in the 40s and the 50s, uh, mainly in the 40s, uh, and I guess uh, she had she had a career in 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 another country like Sweden or something. So she was even reaches back to the 30s. But uh, Hedy Lamarr was uh, also a scientist. <laughs> yeah, she was also a scientist that. Created the, uh, you know, I, I can't get into the details because I don't really know, but the, uh, she created uh, devices that uh, without them these days, we, we couldn't have this, uh, you know, te- technological, uh, you know, tidal yeah. wave that, that we've been talking about. Without yeah, she, her she, contribution. She was she, one of the things that she was known for is she was the first uh, mainstream actress, actress to do a nude scene. Yeah, um, but uh, but she she was an actress, but she was also an inventor and scientist. And during the war effort in World War II, she invented a technology that had something to do with 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 blocking uh, the enemy's ability to uh, uh, intercept our transmissions. And they ultimately didn't use it for the war, but that same technology, a, a poor segment of it, is used for stuff like Wi-Fi and. All of that kind of stuff. So her invention has has long long term ramifications to today, uh, which is, it's a fascinating figure. It'd be a great part for an actress of today to play. Mm, yeah, no question about it. Marion Cotillard. 
There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I watched. I watched Allied the other day. Boy, that was bad. <laughs> you poor thing. You poor thing. I, you know, wanted to, you know, just check it out. Just to, yeah, boy. Has has Zemeckis done anything worth worth seeing since uh, Castaway? I guess Castaway was probably the last movie of his that I really liked. But uh, boy, every time I see his name on a movie now, I'm like, uh oh. Sorry. There you go. There goes the neighborhood. <laughs> Uh, this this was not a good one, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, I can't even think of one great thing to say about it. Uh, the clothes were nice. There you go. There you go. There. <laughs> the clothes were nice in it. But other than that, that was it. So you're just sitting there. Wow, that's a nice suit and tie, you know, whatever. But that's a story. No, no go. But. Uh, so what what else uh, what else is going on? What's in the news? Well, that, sh- that that show I was looking, and the only the only real news story is Top Gun Two. So I think we can just skip over that. Uh, <laughs> I think we've talked enough about fine. the possibilities of Top Gun Two until they actually start making the thing. You know, oh, here's a big news story. This is really big, actually. Uh, uh, Apparently, Terry Gilliam has finally, finally wrapped up production on uh, the Don Quixote movie. After how long has that guy been working on this movie? What for? Oh like twenty two decades? It's two decades, right? Yeah, I mean, we got to yeah. now see it come out, though. I mean. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I'm just, I'm just, wa- I'm waiting for him to lose all of the footage in a fire. I mean, there's something <laughs> they can't. It, this can't be where we are with him actually finishing the movie. <clears throat> uh, I'm just glad that he's done with it. You know, uh, I'm, I'm going to start making bumper stickers that say "God hates Terry Gilliam." <laughs> I'm, gonna, <laughs> that's so I'm waiting for a double double feature of this in the day of the clown cry. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But uh, well, I'm glad that he's done with it, though. I really am. I'm happy happy for him. Even though, I mean, again, Terry Gilliam is one of those directors that really hasn't done anything that I really loved for a really for quite a while. I mean, I I. I can't even remember the last movie that he did that I loved. Uh, maybe even it's twelve been monkeys. A long is, time. Even twelve monkeys is really not up my alley. It, no, uh, twelve maybe, monkeys is still good. No, the last movie he made that's really good is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and then that's, that's it. That's probably that's it. the last one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I tried to watch Zero Theorem, and I was like, it's no a hard way. Movie. It's a hard movie. <laughs> no way. Ten minutes in, I was like, "No way, this is out." Maybe yeah. I might have given it twenty, but uh, it was just uh, it was nothing. And and then I and then I somehow made it all the way through um, uh, the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus, and I was like, "Ugh, that's not bad, but it's not great either." You're just glad it's done, um, you know. Um, it has. You know, what it's was another the one movie where you. Where's the what's yeah. the one with Jeff Bridges he did though? Badly, at least it. 
That's oh, not ca- as bad as everyone made it out to be, but it's not. It's not one that I don't remember. But I don't. I remember watching it, thinking this isn't as bad as everyone made it out to be, though. Either. Okay, um, but uh, uh, you're talking about Fisher King, right? I mean, no, no, Tide, uh, no, Tide Land. Land. Oh, uh, was Jeff Bridges in that? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I think he was. I, I think he was the rotting, one. the rotting corpse, right? He is the rotting corpse. <laughs> yes. Uh, Okay. <laughs> what a roll. And he, but uh yeah, and he still he still spoke like uh Foghorn Leghorn or whatever yeah. whatever accent he always uses. Yeah. Is it is that really how he speaks? Is it now? I mean, is he really speaks that way or is that just some kind of affectation that he's putting on on these characters because I'm curious about it, that. I think it's ex- I think it's accentuated in his characters, but if you see interviews with him now, I mean, he is he is all like uh, ticks and ticks and quirks. He's all uh-huh. like, yeah, you know, he's like making these weird noises. And <laughs> Get him on some AZT. What the hell is going on? <laughs> or whatever, or whatever Oliver Sacks used. There's something going on. <laughs> okay, I was wondering about that. Yeah. No other. Uh, news? I have no list. Yeah, I mean, there's no. I can't really think of anything. I mean, that's really big. I mean, nothing is nothing substantial. You know what? I listened. I mean, I bought, uh, you know, I announced this last week, and it's on our page and everything. Uh, I did I did an episode of the Projection Booth where we talked about uh, One-Eyed Jacks, which is a really good movie. Um, yeah, no, it is, yeah. But, uh, so I listened to it, and it's a, it's a good episode. Mike, Mike White, who does the Projection Booth, always does a good job. But uh, there was a whole running gag in the show that he cut out. And uh, and as I was as we were recording it, I thought to myself, I wonder if he's taking offense to this because I'm naturally sarcastic. I don't want him to think that I'm making, honestly making fun of anything with him. And uh, but he because he brought up, has anyone seen the Turkish version of One Eyed Jacks? And uh, I was like, no, I'm sorry, I missed that. So he spent a lot of time talking about the Turkish version, which I thought was funny. So and then we brought up Turkish Star Wars and all that kind of stuff. So throughout yeah, the remainder yeah. of the show. Any 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 movie or, or series or anything that anyone brought up during that conversation, I would always say no. But I, I saw the Turkish version of that, <laughs> and I think it, I think it aggravated him. <laughs> anyway, so that's that's not in the final edit. So uh, uh, I want to say this. You know what? You mentioned that you wanted to buy the rights to some book or something. The only piece of material that I've ever been interested in buying the rights for, and I actually. Contacted like the the um, Library of Congress or whatever it is you contact. I remember years ago to ask if it was in the public domain yet. Is Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man Is Hard to Find, uh, mm-hmm. which is really more like a, more like a short story kind of novella kind of thing. But I've always loved that story. Uh, well, they're making a movie of it, and uh, it's John McNaughton reteaming with Michael Rooker. Okay. Oh, that's a great combo. That's that is yeah. interesting. At the same time, I think Michael Rooker is perfect for it. Uh, uh, he's too perfect for it. Like he's 
he, he, you've already seen that performance, like before he even gives it. Uh, I, right. I wanted some. Uh, I wanted somebody, you know, a lot more traditionally handsome. I didn't want somebody that looked like they, you know, come from the swamp. You know, probably <laughs> <laughs> God bless my God bless Michael Rooker. We love him, but <laughs> I didn't mean that to sound as insulting as it did. <laughs> Well, I mean, how about Michael Shannon? You don't want would he be? That would be that would be really interesting. Yeah. Uh, anyway, well, we'll I mean, that's one of those properties that it's surprising it's never been made into a movie. In fact, I have a friend that uh, 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 who's you know uh, Jake Jacobson who's. was on a scuttled show in the past. We'll have Jake on the show uh, again, but um, uh, Jake has a script for uh, a good band. It's hard to find. That's what he tells me, at least. He's he's been trying to get that made, but, uh, you know, it hasn't gone anywhere. So I'm sure he'll be... Tell them they're making it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure sure he'll be pissed that they're making it, but... Apparently, Doug Lyman has uh, has announced that uh, Edge of Tomorrow Two, <laughs> which I, I don't know what they're what the hell they're going to call it because they changed the title of it when it came to video. But uh, Edge of Tomorrow Two is apparently a go, and it's it's going to pick up right exactly where the last movie left off. Is Emily um, Blunt coming back? Yes. Well, then that that's a, then there's a good reason to watch it right there. So I mean, I mean, I, I exactly. you know that's one of the great Tom Cruise movies. I think. Uh, and, yeah, no, no, uh, it definitely, it definitely is. I mean, it's just the one where he's not Jack Reacher. So I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, so uh, I'm I'm excited for that, and no, I, I no, guess that, he has. Good. I guess his seventies drug running movie, whatever whatever it's called, the the uh, Tom Cruise movie, uh, what's what's it called? I've forgotten now, but um, I guess that's coming out later on this year, right? Wait, that's not the Mummy. <laughs> oh, I thought that was the Mummy. Shit. Okay, I'm really lost now. Okay, I thought it was. No, the mummy. I, 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 I think it's a fall. It, it seems like it'll be a fall release. <clears throat> That uh, that's a promising, that's a promising title. American Made is what it's called. It's another American thing. They're gonna just every movie. If you have an idea for a movie, just put the word American in front of the title that you come up with, because that's what everybody. Which is not to be confused with Made in America, like a totally different movie. Like totally different. It's not Tom Cruise and Whoopi Goldberg and a used (laughs) car line. It's it's completely differently. Different. I uh yeah, I'm looking forward to this movie. Another Doug Lyman film too, so Yeah, yeah. So that should be good. Edge of Tomorrow Two, they should just name well, they changed the name for it because they were so surprised that it didn't do better at the box office, which it definitely deserved to do well. That they changed the name when it came like the home video or something home video. When it came to Blu ray and stuff. So they should and that name was Live, Die, Repeat is what they changed the title to. So in this next movie, they should call it Live, Die, Repeat since since the whole movie is about repeating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, go, no, I agree. Go with the same that would title. be nice and confusing for everybody. 
again, I, I go back to my, they should have called it Do-Over. You know, I still think that that's a good title. So one yeah, that's their initial title. Their initial title was on Oblivion. <laughs> their initial title was uh, "All You Need Is All You Need Is Kill," which was a terrible title. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, speaking of Oblivion, that that guy, the John John Kronsky or whatever his name is, he's the one that's doing Top Gun too, the director of Oblivion. Mm. Oh God! Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, that's gonna. But already the the whole the whole trajectory of that potential title has been destroyed now. Uh, and by so that uh, they asked they asked Tom Cruise about it, and um, he was like, "Yeah, we're it's going to have the same exact feel of the first Top Gun. We're bringing back Harold Faltermeyer. Uh, the movie's going to be called Top Gun Maverick, uh, and we're bringing back uh, Kelly McGillis. She's going to play the Tom Skerritt role." And, uh, you know, it's going to be good. <laughs> she's not playing that character. She's actually playing Tom Scarrett, which I think is interesting. <laughs> interesting way to go. Yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, for That's Iceman, funny. since Val Kilmer is ill, even though he wants to do it, they're going to get the real Iceman. You know, he's in prison right now. But, uh, <laughs> they're going to bail him out. <laughs> I think it sounds like a great project. It does. Fantastic. For for Goose, because if you remember Goose, like <laughs> he ejected out of the plane and it didn't eject right, so he bashed his head on the top of the jet, you know, kinda of bashed his head in. That guy from the they're they're getting that guy from the uh that movie Pet Cemetery, you know, the one with the bloody head wound. In Pet Cemetery, he's going to play Goose in this next one. It's like a, like a, it's going to be like a ghost goose. Oh God! Oh God! Okay, a ghost goose. <laughs> 